You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 163 is Lily Lewis, a classically trained pianist and singer, first based in Boston, now New Orleans. She is an executive at Louisiana Red Hot Records, and she's released eight albums and two EPs since 2003, plus two albums and an EP with her band with her wife, Liz Hogan, called The Shiz. You're right now hearing Lady from her first album, The Coming of John, 2003. We'll be discussing Coffee Shop Girl, the version from her brand new album, Americana. She previously recorded this for 2018's The Henderson Sessions, both of those produced by one of my previous guests, Mark Bingham. Then we'll look at Warm and Gentle People by the Lily Lewis Project from We Belong, 2019, and Song for the End of Days from Castles of Her Crystalline, 2005. We'll conclude by listening to Copper John from the new album, for more information, please see folkrockdiva.com and lilylewisproject.com. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I really hope you'll support the effort at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic, which will get you ad-free versions of every episode, a little bonus talking, and my notes for the episodes. So I will play a little bit of Lady from your first official album, The Coming of John, 2003. I assume you were doing stuff before that. Choirs? Opera training, can you say a little bit, you know, even just getting to the point of, okay, now I'm going to release an album. It's going to be a solo album. This is what it's going to be. Well, truth is, I never thought I would have a career outside of classical music. You know, I was really nerdy. So I was looking into musicology, but then in undergrad, a couple of teachers really thought I had something to offer. And I kept winning competitions on piano. And then I started winning competitions singing and So then I was like, well, I enjoyed singing so much, especially the classical repertoire. We had to fill your whole body in order to make any sound come out. Piano is my first best friend, still one true love. Don't let my wife hear me say that. (laughs) And so my relationship with that music was so intimate and it just filled every part of me. I think because I didn't have any mirrors, I never could see a path for me as a concertizer, as a pianist in particular. As a singer, you know, I did work as a concertizer for a while. My father passed away in the middle of all of that. And I had a little bit of a break. Like I just was grieving an awful lot. And all of my thoughts that I used to spill out on many, many pages of my journals got very, very small. I had this little tiny notebook. It was like maybe two inches by three inches, like a little tiny notebook. And I started writing songs in this little tiny notebook or rather little tiny thoughts that later became songs. One of the best things that happened during that time, I had gone to this New England boarding school and one of my music teachers there was retiring and I got invited to come up and perform for her retirement ceremony. And that's where I met Jennifer Kimball, who was half of the story, you know, kind of the Newland version of the Indigo Girls, who I also grew up with. And just being in the room with a self-expressed singer-songwriter playing two-finger chords, as she used to call it, and like just having all these different sounds wash over me and feeling her authentic experience being expressed through her songs kind of opened a door for me. Because before that moment, I was like, well, that's not really a thing. As a classical composer, I took other people's poems, set them to music. And all of a sudden, the idea of singing my own words was a possibility. 
So shortly after undergrad, I ran away from home to Boston to join the Boston women's singer-songwriter scene at the time. That was around 2000. I got a bartending license and (laughs) just decided to try to make a new life. And it was really to see if I could find a way to get the thoughts that were in that little tiny book out into the world. And my first venture into sharing that with anybody was that album you mentioned, The Coming of John. Okay, so now we're a dozen albums later, Americana 2021, which I see has some stuff. I don't know, you tended to re-record a number of things. This song that we had picked, Coffee Shop Girl, you had done a solo version on your 2018 The Henderson Sessions album. Can you say a little about the development of this song, Coffee Shop Girl, and then the decision to, we're going to do it again for the new album with a full band? The 2018 record was an accident. I'd gone out to Mark Bingham's studio, which was in the home of my bass player. And for about a year, maybe two years, my bass player was saying, hey, you know, Mark Bingham lives at my house and he'll record for you. And I was busy wanting to not be a bother. And so I didn't take him up on it. And then I sort of got desperate one day because I felt like nothing was moving forward. And I was like, you really think Mark would record something for me? He said, yeah. And it was like, well, how about next week? And I'm like, next week, you know? So at that time, we were already performing Coffee Shop Girl with my full band. And what I thought I was doing was going out to the studio to lay down some demos so we could start mapping out a record. And we maybe recorded about 20 songs over a couple of days. And Bingham said, nah, you got to release this as it is. We'll come back and do a record. It's no problem. But we got to release this as is. And so I picked nine songs that felt cohesive to me and that felt honest. And I think he gave me probably like the starkest mirror I'd ever had for my own voice and my own music. It was just like just voice and piano. And he promised me there was nothing to hide. So we put out Henderson Sessions by his hand. That was his idea. But I hadn't given up on putting out the songs the way I heard them in my head. And so we followed that up with two other records. One was with my full band and it ended up being called We Belong. And then the other is the newest project, Americana. And it recaptured some of the songs that we had demoed out in that first session. And then it also brought some new songs on the table that were born in 2020 during the unrest, the great undoing of us all. Little girl is a woman made world of her own. 
The uh, intro here is more concise than on the solo version, I guess. You didn't know. You thought you were laying down the actual track, but yet the intro, I think, on the original version is about twice as long as this. Whereas when you have the other instruments with you, you know, for that little walk up, then I don't know. I guess you don't need as much piano 
messing around? (laughs) Mark likes to trim the fat. So when we first recorded it and there was virtually no fat to trim because it's just a voice and piano, he decided it felt more organic. And actually it is. If you notice in the first recording, my tempo is weird and I'm all over the place and swimmy. I I, I end up singing the song at a different tempo than I started it at. And it's all very alive and organic. And that's just what that moment did. You know, that's what happened in that moment. And so, yeah, you had to have all the uh, intro. Otherwise, it wouldn't feel organic, you know, if you had this hop. But when you go and record with other musicians, and again, just remember, like, we're just laying down demos. We're just there to see what's going to happen. But when you go to record with other musicians and you think you might produce the thing, you might layer things, like, everybody's like, well, how about we do a click track? <laughs> you know, let's like, mm-hmm. let's save 12 dozen hours and record it to a click track. And what that does is it gives you the freedom to edit the form. It gives you the freedom to tighten things up. And one of the things I really respect about Mark's approach to production, and it changes depending on the project, but when he's dealing with straight up singer-songwriter material, he's like, it's the song that matters. So anything that weighs down the song or detracts attention from the song itself gets thrown out on the cutting board. And in my band, I'm notorious for editing. Like we have numbers that are 10 minutes long when we play live. But when I recorded it, I cut it down to, you know, three or four minutes and they hate that, you know, (laughs) but I'm like, but it weighs down the song on the record. You know, when we play it live, it creates an experience for folks where we're jumping off cliffs together and all the tears and the feels, but to capture that on a record, it's a whole different experience. Records are so intimate, you know, and you want to stay as connected as possible with your audience. So in this case for Coffee Shop Girl, that meant we took out some of the intro, we took out some of the interlude in between, and we just told the story. I think that was where Mark was coming from on those edits. And I think it's an okay call. I sometimes feel like I over edit, like I choke out the space for people to just surrender to the sound. But I think in this case, you can surrender to the harmonies that come at the choruses and you still get that sort of out breath. Just little things that happen based on how you enter the production. I think when you add the other layers Potentially, you can lose something from the acoustic version, from the solo version. But for this one, everybody is so tasteful. It is just ridiculous that you still get pretty much the full force of you and your piano coming through. And then, of course, when we hit the, well, I noticed so it, it changed from yeah, yeah to hey, yeah. You know, how do you even decide, like, what is going to be the non-vocal thing that I, or was there ever a point where there was a lyric in that section? Not at all. That section was born, hey, yeah. Uh... What changed over time is the placement of my voice. So when I recorded it the first time, I, you know, I was feeling kind of shy because I was naked and exposed. And at that time, I had a more closed placement. And what that refers to is the shape of your mouth, like literally the shape of your mouth when you sing. 
So I had sort of a narrow shape going on when I sang. And so you may not have heard Hey Ya as Hey Ya because of the shape of my mouth. But over the three years since then, I've started telling the story differently and the shape of my mouth and how I use the rest of my face has sort of evolved a little bit. And you hear it, hear it differently, but it was born that way. It was always that way. I never really tried to figure out what I meant by that little interlude. I think what that meant in my body was just a gesture that brings people into the lilt of that 6-8 or 12-8 uh, meter. Just a ha, ha, which is kind of tied to, you know, those old, you know, you used to call those meters perfect meters back, you know, in the Renaissance and before the Renaissance. Those 6-8 driven meters were called perfect meters because that's actually closer to the heartbeat, you know, the heartbeat, kung, 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 and not like kung, 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 you know. And so my body has always responded to these 6-8 and 12-8 meters as if it's connected to some ancient thing. And so I think that's why I wanted to accent this ancient thing because the story that I'm telling is kind of, is, you know, it's about guns. It's about women and guns. And that's a weird little thing that emerged at that time in my life where like a number of women in my life were talking to me about how much they loved their guns. And, you know, I had maybe four or five other verses really but I ended up centering it around the coffee shop girl because she was this very demure looking person who had put out some anti-marriage equality literature on the coffee shop counter. And I didn't realize that it was her. And so I asked her if I could talk to the manager because my wife went to that coffee shop every day. Um, and I was like, you know, this doesn't feel great. And she's like, actually, I put it out there. And she said that the only federal law there needed to be was one that would protect her right to bear arms. And I thought, you know, if everything goes that poorly in the world that, you know, I'm, I need a gun to protect my family, I'm not going to need a law to tell me that I can have it. And I said, you know, me being who I am, you know, black person in America, like I like some of the federal laws. And like I was like, without some of them, I wouldn't be able to have this conversation with you. And she looked at me right in the eye and said, exactly. And I was like, oh, well, now you're the center of my song. <laughs> like, you know. And she was British? Is that? No, she wasn't British. The first character in the first verse, she was British. Okay. That was a little confusing just in terms of, is this one story about a woman who's left her man and she also has these weird, you know, it seemed like a very detailed to the point of incoherent character setup, but no, it's three different people. So that, that makes sense. <laughs> three different people. I just got told uh, by a radio promoter a couple of days ago, I have a song on um, We Belong with my band called Coretta Song. And it was a song that came from a dream and, and he was looking for songs that were appropriate to promote during Black History Month. And this was a song about Coretta Scott King. And it was written on the night that she passed away. And I said, well, you know, maybe you could look at this song. And he said, well, no, nobody will understand those words. And I was like, oh, that's fascinating because it's full of tropes for me. It's full of things that are embedded into my DNA understanding of the world. And I thought, oh, wow, that's really fascinating how not having the same frame of reference makes the song incoherent to some. So I took the note and I realized, yeah, I should tell people when I perform Coffee Shop Girl Live, I do tell people 
you know, these are women in my life. They're different women. <laughs> and they're all talking to me about their guns. <laughs> well, and that the same mood is running through the song so that you're treating them all with compassion. I mean, you have some quieter. I'm trying to remember if the last verse is particularly quieter than the others. Anyway, there's ups and downs in the dynamics, but it's not like now we turn to this woman who's talking about how integration was poorly done and you're still approaching it with compassion and love as opposed to tweaking the tone. You don't need to show that you disapprove. I mean, just describing the view, it's pretty obvious. Right. You have to just make it plain. And that's the whole point of the lullaby. That's the whole point of the hey, yeah. It's the like, we're all in this together. We have to breathe together. You know, we're occupying the same spaces and me expressing my rage. And like, I don't know how many people can relate to this experience, but when you meet that moment where somebody is, you know, facing you directly and they're saying there's something fundamental about who you are that I find repulsive. And I don't think that I should have to interact with you. It's a heavy moment and it impacts your body. And for me, it brings up grief. I'm like a big feeling person, you know, it brings up grief, but I am grown up enough to handle my own grief. And I'm also trying to learn to be grown up enough to speak to the things that cause me grief. But I don't expect the people who I would want to understand that I'm also human. I don't expect for them to get it unless I try to say it in a way that requires that they lean in a little bit. That's why it's a lullaby. It's like, you know, it's an inception. It's like, you know, you've already said it was incoherent. So, well, maybe it's not working, but sometimes if I can get them to cry, I can get them to lean into the narrative a little bit and think a little bit about how they're impacting their environment in those moments, you know, and I've had some success over the years. I've had people say, you know, Lily, I never expected to have a meaningful relationship with a lesbian. And they say that the best form of activism they feel like they could handle for me was just me being out there, being myself, me and my wife in particular, when we used to perform together. So it's like, I try to find patience, maybe too much patience. I know that I've been accused of having too much patience, but I do try to find little spaces to expand, like we all may be able to expand into instead of choking it out with my grief. I hear you saying that there were a number of more verses make sense for this song. It sort of has that old ballad quality in terms of a folk ballad that you could just keep telling these different stories or tell the further adventures of the various characters that you've set up, maybe have them interact, you know, whatever. And you always have that release of the nice chorus that you can go back to And part of it is that repetitive basic melody line in the verses that rise up and go down again. You do have, I I wanted to play a section here on how you get into the chorus here, because you you have more music theory knowledge than a person writing one of those traditional folk ballads. Now we land on the one, right? Yeah, it was that that six chord that you said can enliven her bones that makes it more like a, I don't know, a Joni Mitchell song or something than a, a rustic 1940s or pre 20th century ballad. I try to stay away from five chords. A lot of those like early 19th and early 20th century ballad styles 
we'll throw in a, a five chord for a pivot. I stay away from those just because I, I like to keep the air open a little bit. If you notice in this song, there's virtually no melody. You know, the like the five, 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 one, I mean, you know, one, 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 five, one, five, one, five, one. Like, it's like, that's a new thing. Like, and I just reversed those. I totally inverted those, but that's fine. It's a new thing that people are not writing melodies anymore. I, as a singer, really miss melodies, but I felt like in this particular case, I wanted to be repetitive. I wanted to have that lilting feel. I wanted there to be no melody. I literally wanted it to put a little bit of a trance, like, uh, just go with it. And like that one little six chord these days is enough to turn people off to, oh, it's jazz. You know, it's like you put in one, chord, like one extra chord and it's jazz. I feel like I'm always coming at things with a folk sensibility, but it's true since I grew up, like I was a huge Francophile as a pianist. And so I played tons of turn of the century. French music, like 4A was my favorite composer, is my favorite composer. I call him my big daddy. And like, you know, a lot of Ravel, you know, a lot, a little bit of Debussy, you know, but I was more of a neoclassicist anyway. And so that approach to the chordal language is still with me. I have to straightjacket myself to reduce the song to three chords. When I do that, it's very deliberate. One of my favorite songs is Foreman Gentle People from the We Belong record. And it's a song that's been with me for a long time. But I was recently listening to it and going, you know what? None of your melody is on a chord tone. Like the whole melody is like, you know, all these extensions. It's like, no wonder nobody can sing along. But the songs that are most myself are the ones that are probably least accessible. But I, for me, that's still folk music to me because of where it's coming from. It's coming from trying to give a direct message to people using whatever language makes the most sense for the story that I'm trying to tell. So Coffee Shop Girl is trying to tell a very direct human story to a specific person. Like I'm wanting that person, like her boyfriend and her community, like I want that person to be able to hear what I'm trying to say. So I deliberately took out anything that might say you know, oh, that's jazz. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> no, no, no flowing uh, bassoon solo or something. Yes, right, right, thing. exactly. <laughs> well, you've done the uh, the transition for me already. The segue, so warm and gentle people. Let's get this out there. And and this is much more not just jazzy, but kind of Dionysian. You know, <laughs> explosive. The band. I mean, we got we got some parts on the previous song on Coffee Shop Girl. You know, the bass soars up for a riff. Right, one riff. Yeah. <laughs> one 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 little riff. <laughs> but this one, yeah, we we just overall from the very beginning and and this one stretches out to 6 minutes 41 seconds on the count <laughs> to give you a lot of of room and the vocal rhythms are much looser really in this and the third song that we're going to talk about. There's no folk trope that this is settling in any way into. Do you want to say a little more about what this song is about before folks hear it and then we'll talk in more detail. The reason in my mind this is still a folk song is because it's 80% vamp. The song is 80% vamp, the same thing over and over again. And even the approach to the lyric structure, the verse structure, you know, it's like it's it's very classic structure. But it's a different tonal palette and it certainly has a wider dynamic range both musically and emotionally. And it's because this song was actually born when I was still living in Boston, like in the week after 9-11. And 
my roommate had been on the flight to LA that had happened the week before. So it was like, it felt very, very close to home. And we were all sort of devastated. It might not have impacted us the way it impacted New York, but Boston was a ghost town for a while after, and we we felt the shock. It was really me trying to reconcile on the scope of like the whole history of humanity, how that moment and moments like it can happen. There's this like childlike heart that we're all kind of built with. And then there's the question of how does that get morphed into something that can generate terror for others? What would be driving that? And are any of us exempt from that experience? And so I was asking myself those questions. And then this little allegory emerged. And again, you'll feel that six, eight rhythm again, because that's, you know, kind of where I live, where I like to live. But it just kind of rolls on like time, this ascending line. And then me mapping, again, trying to have a compassionate approach to this human narrative. And then you hear the chord language shift when I go lyrically from our innocent heart to the part that gets tight and squeezed. So it's loaded. And the recording turned out, I think, beautifully. But when we play it live, it's even more primal. I mean, we're by the time we get to the end, we're just straight up feral children trying to get, a, you know, trying to survive in this world. So is this a set closer? Is it a set closer? No. In fact, what we tend to do is give them a, something like a coffee shop girl <laughs> after it to like sort of cleanse the palate and let people know it's all going to be okay. <laughs>
before we talk about the song, let's do a little sponsor break, for I must tell you about the Nebbia by Moen Quattro Showerhead. Nebbia is backed by some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley, and their showerheads are designed by former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers who have a passion for saving water and creating a superior shower experience. Their latest innovation, the most affordable shower yet, is the Nebbia by Moen Quattro, the world's best high-pressure water-saving shower, starting at only $119. Why Quattro? Well, because it has a little knob on it, and you flip it, and you switch between four different spray modes, including two powerful high-pressure spray modes, in addition to the popular Nebbia Spa Spray, which is the one I prefer. You just shove your face in it, really fills up the space, makes you very warm, but... Switching to the others is a nice change. They all have their uses. I just washed a dog with one of them because I got the hand shower version. So the head is hooked to the base by a magnet. You pull it down. Quattro allows you to save water without compromising on experience. Each mode saves 40 to 50% of water compared to additional shower. And Nebbia also offers sustainable bathroom accessories such as their quick dry earth mat shower shelves, shower curtains. Nebbia by Moen starts at just $119 exclusively on Nebbia.com. And Nebbia gave us a special discount just for our community. Go to Nebbia.com slash NEM. Use code NEM at checkout to get 10% off Nebbia products. Even better, Nebbia is offering free shipping on Quattro orders from the U.S. for just a few more days. Again, go to Nebbia.com slash NEM. That's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash NEM to check out what they have to offer and save 10% with the code NEM. So yeah, there's a version of this back on your 2005 album, which is much more restrained. It gets to that ascending main piano riff quicker. We haven't really talked about how bossy you are with your band. <laughs> is, it, <laughs> is it just the jazz thing? Everybody's listening to each other or is it, don't play riff at the end of that, <laughs> that kind of... It always changes depending on what we're doing because... My band plays every style of music I throw at them. And sometimes, interestingly enough, in a jazz club, we have to be a little bit more contained. You know, the jazz sensibility these days is it's not the Coltrane years. In fact, even when Coltrane was around, they tried to say that wasn't even music because he was so expressive, you know. But we can play that tune all out in a rock club and people kind of dig it and kind of get into it. So our approach to it will change based on whether it's a performance arts venue or it's all because we're trying to communicate. It's not because, oh, we're selling out. And, you know, and It's more because we really are attempting to communicate and we always reserve the right to get a little bit louder than they expected. I kind of have this broader vision of reminding people that sometimes it's okay and actually necessary to get loud, that we don't have to keep everything even because that's actually not what reality is like. Some of our experiences are pretty tough. And if we don't push back on it, we lose a sense of agency. And so for me, that's what getting meaty with it affords us. So how bossy am I with my band? Probably not bossy enough, but they try to pay attention to my energy. So if my energy is heated, you know, my drummer actually ends up driving the bus on this. Like he usually has his eyes fixed like a hawk on me and he can tell by how I'm accenting in the piano. He can tell by like what's going on with my Afro (laughs) in the shows. Like he can tell where I am on my emotional map. And he tries to meet that. He can tell if I'm holding back a little bit and he knows that I have something to say and he'll push a little bit. We've been working together for over 10 years now. And so we have a very kind of intimate connection on the stage in that way. 
And then everybody else sort of tries to follow suit. Everybody else sort of tries to meet our energy. When we made this recording, he couldn't see me. I was in a different room. The piano room in Bingham studio at the time was blocked off with no window between the piano room and the drum room. So the drummer could see bass player, guitar. They were in a separate room. But my back was to Wade, my drummer's back, right? And there's a wall in between us. And so the fact that the recording came out as organically as it did, and that was the first take too. It was, we only did one take of that. Like just speaks to the connection that we have. So I think that's really what it comes down to. Like, you know, because I can get really, really small when I want to make an intimate statement, I get really, really small. And if I don't find that they're following me there, I tell them with the piano, like I make the piano almost inaudible in order for them to say, no, more space, people, more space. So all of it is happening in the moment. And it all depends on the emotional map that I have to share. Unfortunately, like I have a million backstories whenever I'm singing any of these songs and I never know what backstory is going to load when we go to play the song. So they really have to stay aware of me. And I think that's the jazziest thing about that particular band. Well, and that seems pretty exceptional for, you know, the fact that your website is folk rock diva for a diva to be so attached to communicating through the piano rather than, you know, I'm going to be completely freeform on my singing rhythm. And so therefore I need to just be standing up in the front, waving my arms around and maybe delegate some of the stuff that I would have played in the studio when in a live setting, you know, somebody else has to hold the keys down. But no, it seems like that is an essential part of what you are as a band leader. Oh, absolutely. I told you the piano is my first friend. And, you know, it's like I express everything through the piano before my voice even feels like it can do. That's historically been the case. I'll be honest, lately, my voice has found that it has things to say on its own. And I really appreciate that. I'm like, okay, this is a new moment. Cool. But there's something that happens when that information comes back, like from those strings vibrating and the wood doing what it does. Like, there's something that happens. It's a meditation for me. It's ritual. And my voice and my body is responding to all those other vibrations. I think when I was first learning piano, actually before I started lessons, there was a piano at my father's church. And after the service, I would go up to the piano and just play one note at a time and follow the decay all the way to the end as if I was trying to memorize how each note went, you know? And that kind of connection with that instrument is still super sacred to me. And I don't feel like I'm nearly as eloquent as I want to be, certainly not nearly as eloquent as I once was, but emotionally, it's still a real sincere conduit for me. When I'm standing and just delivering a song without the piano, it becomes about a performance. It becomes about taking care of the people. It's more entertainment in a way, whereas behind the piano, I feel more like myself. I'm a hardcore introvert, and it's really the relationship between me and the piano. And to tell you the truth, I think it has a little bit of a voyeuristic effect, and I'm not sure that the audience always feels all that taken care of. But what I'm doing is sharing with them my meditations. And the piano is my primary. It's like the piano is like the breath. It's the primary conduit. 
And so that's how I have to lead the band. And I tell the band ahead of time, you know, this is what this song means to me. These are the moments that matter to me. Like, this is where you'll see me dig in. And then I leave it up to them to offer themselves in whatever way feels most, most authentic to them in the context of, of what we're trying to say. The other thing to keep in mind is that the diva thing, you know, I probably got that moniker because I used to sing opera, but the diva thing is really more about me continuing to try to develop and grow into the highest version of myself and encourage, like, you know, kind of use my work, my words, my, you know, whatever I'm trying to do, try to use my work to like help people feel their own sense of self-sovereignty and agency, empowerment, decency, compassion, you know, everything is designed to be a massage, you know. And if I didn't imagine that I could impact people, then I'd be singing little dainty songs in my living room and I wouldn't bother to go out because I'm that much of an introvert. Like it's really difficult for me to be around people. And so that diva word has come to mean more than just being a singer and singing loud, you know? So that makes sense of the tone of the lyrics here that it's not actually mourning for some Rousseau-like state of nature before war came and messed us up because, you know, probably that there was no such thing. There's no Garden of Eden. But having that there as an image, not necessarily like direct as a direct command for future action, but as a... Exploration of potentiality. Right. It's just about potential. Right. That it's more motivating in some way to say everything has gone to hell. Let's try to get back to where we were than to just say, We've always been in this state of squalor and uh, inconsideration, but we're gradually growing to some higher form of consciousness. And, you know, it's, it starts to sound very new agey to spell out a, a utopia of future. The thing is, the before the before that I reference in the song, you know, I can globalize it and say, oh, yeah. But really what I'm talking about is before any of us were damaged. And this is me speaking from my own experience. Like I have a pretty loaded trauma history and I can see pictures of me as a child before certain events happened and after. And I can see the transition. I can see where I went from being like really buoyant and exuberant to being really contained energetically. And my ability and willingness to reclaim the parts that created war inside me, to reclaim, confront, acknowledge, maybe grow up around, if I'm lucky, the things that created my internal war, and also acknowledge that I'm not just a function of the trauma and its aftermath. I came loaded with a different program. So there's more than one program running, and they interact with one another. And for me to be able to acknowledge that there's more than one program running really makes it more possible for me to continue to try to extend into being a more grounded human. I certainly use new agey language to get there, but I don't necessarily believe that trying to grow up into being a more grounded human is all that new agey. When you're doing the work, it's actually not new agey at all. It's very deliberate work. I use this allegory to be a metaphor for the internal work that's required, because I honestly think that the more of us that are able to do that internal work, the less harm 
we cause when we're walking about and the less harm we pass on. And that could be naive. It's just kind of what I imagine to be so. I know I perform less harm having attempted the work of growing up. And so I doubt that I'm the only one. It's a very personal journey that I globalize with this sort of proposition that there was a before the before. And then there's a moment, not just a moment, but like there's always the potentiality for our rage to take over. You know, there's always the possibility that our wounding will land on somebody else. Well, speaking of chronological metaphors, let's jump to the third song, Song for the End of Days, also from that 2005 album that the original version of Warm and Gentle People was from. But here we'll get to hear your actual production values from back then. Castles of Her Crystalline. So that's your second album overall or third album? I think Castles was second. Yeah. Yes, the second. Sleeper's Wake is the third. Okay. And I definitely heard something, you know, maybe we were just playing with a different band at this point that, or a choice of synthesizer that I don't hear on any of the later stuff. Can you say a little about where you're at at this point with the band and what might have fed into this sound? This is very early on in my recording career. Before Castles, I was being scouted by a few labels and they kept saying, Oh, it's really good music, but we don't know how we could market it. And I was watching all of the people around me sort of get either signed up or people like, you know, latching on to produce them and yada, yada, yada. And I was just an orphan left to do it all myself for years, really until Bingham came along. So my first record, Coming of John, was just mostly live recordings and, you know, maybe one or two sessions that I could afford that I strung together and got mastered, you know. And the second recording, Castles of Her Crystalline, it was just like uh, some friends of mine, like I was living in Atlanta, but I grew up in Athens and I just like took a night trip over to Athens to visit some friends from music school. And we somehow like we're just hanging out and talking about how the Bee Gees were underrated and like the bass line that it was a guitarist who like played the bass and guitar. And we were just like kind of like jamming on some Bee Gees chords. And like, and then I had a really kind of cheap, keyboard at the time and, and it's just like yeah this is what I'll play to that and it just they went to bed and I wrote a song like you know over this little jam that we put together in the middle of the night I certainly didn't know anything I was doing about recording but I was just in a phase where I was still enamored of the spontaneous immersion of songs so I somehow it landed you know I I have a preacher for a father so prophetic language is just like second nature for me and I just started singing and that that's what came out. And then I just harmonized it. And it's so irregular that no one's ever been able to perform it with me. <laughs> but it's a little jam. And what's unfortunate is that over the years, it seems more and more relevant. <laughs> you know? Take a long look still 
All right. So when you say you can't get anybody to do this with you, are you talking about like the vocal harmonies of having that actually have the rhythms be clear enough? Actually, we didn't talk about, I assumed you were just overdubbing yourself in the previous songs when these big choruses. Yes. Yeah. Totally overdubbing myself. 
And like, that's the whole point is that it doesn't work if the rhythms are clear. We could reinterpret it and square it up and make it a number, but it's like, no, like what I think works about it, it's got this sort of like pre-firmament kind of, you know, wishy-washy, wishy, you know, approach to those background vocals. It's these angels that know something we don't know and and that are trying to sort of lull us into trying to go out with a certain sense of hope. And it's funny, that vision came back to me, I don't know, 15 years later recently. Like my band has this motto of practice radical decency. And that came from another dream of like, oh yeah, this might be the end, but we can't let that be an excuse to turn into jerks. Like we have to lean into our humanity in a more profound, more deliberate way. Because if any of us survive on the next go round, we're going to have to do things differently. Again, this is all good old daughter of a preacher, man. This is how I dream, you know, (laughs) that sense of can we still celebrate that which makes life worth living, even if this is it? Can we say Yes, as we're going down to the fact that this is a pretty interesting ride. I notice, especially even on Americana, I don't notice that my stuff is dark until somebody else points it out. So this life is a suicide mission thing. What's that about? You know, and like there's all these moments that I'm watching us go down. Like I'm watching, even as we evolve socially, I'm watching us not be able to claim the wisdom that would protect us from making destructive decisions because this is a very complex convergence, you know, that we're working with. And, you know, it's like the simplest thing tends to win. And the simplest thing is not always the thing that's the most sustainable. So it's like, I love humans. I love having had this experience as being a human and I'm rooting for us. Like, I think we're tender and adorable and complicated. And a lot of people are in a lot of pain. I just like, I want us to win. But if we can't win, let's try to make it a good ride, you know. I see how you're saying that even at the end of days, we can do these things. But then, you know, you use the future tense. You will stand again. You will dance again. You will sing. you know, that it makes it sound more like, of course, if you're feeling like this, that this is the end of days. You could be talking kind of as a social allegory. Is it a future tense or is it a command? All right. I had not thought of that. It seemed more like a, you know, things have hit you. But tomorrow's going to be, the sun will come out tomorrow, that it's a fancier, more apocalyptic version of that basic message. I'm not sure the sun is coming out. (laughs) I'm not sure. (laughs) The sun is potentially coming out within your cells, maybe not actually outside. This sun is setting. Don't let your sun set. You know, that's really the command. (laughs) All right. So it sounds like from the way this was put together, I should not read too much into the particular arrangement decisions of, oh, now the little guitar single note solo is going to be exposed. And this was just sort of a group jam that then you patched together. Did you have to re-edit it or did the length of the jam actually set? Was that merely a compositional thing? It was compositional. This is how obnoxious I am. He thinks he's jamming. And I go, wait, that's turning into a song. And then I start telling him what to do. Like, no, play that over and over again. And that's going to be the solo, right? You know, and I think I've learned over time that anything that sort of approaches the popish realm ends up feeling a little bit like a nursery rhyme. And so doing the same thing over and over again in the solo moment, just totally the opposite of what my current band does. Like, They get mad. Like we had a guest performer on our album 
come in and play a trombone solo on another apocalyptic song called When the Rain Comes In. Mm-hmm. And they were so mad because he just played one note over and over again. And they were like, wait, where's all the doodle little in the noodles? And we could have done that. And it's just like, yeah, but you would never do that. You would play lots of notes. And it's more singable if you only play one note, you know, look at any Neil Young solo. You know? So yeah, like that's how that session went. It started out as a jam. And then I started hearing the song in real time and started telling him what to do. So no, I, I didn't do much editing. I just, he went to bed after he laid down the bass and guitar that I also dictated. <laughs> and then I, you know, I started layering keyboards and vocals and just like, because the song really just came out like that. It just showed up in my head while the jam was going on. Did that mean that he got writing credit because he went, like that that counts as? No, because that was no. my idea too. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. <laughs> It's like, you know, you don't usually get writing credit for a rhythm guitar part, you know, but then when the writer starts dictating the rhythm pattern, then you really don't get right. (laughs) He was a friend and it was a friend session. So, but I can be that obnoxious sometimes. Like you're just playing rhythm and I'm like, no, 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 this rhythm. No, 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 no. Leave out that note. No, 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 no. You know, we have on the most recent thing, uh, we've got a song called Wrecking Ball where we rearranged it for this record. The guitarist comes in with a lick and, you know, like, no, leave out those notes, leave out those notes, put that note in. You know, it's like, you know, I got that from Patty Andrus from Tuck and Patty. I remember her talking about her process and like Tuck is, you know, such an amazing guitarist. He can do anything. But she's like, you know, most of the times on the songs that I write, I dictate every note. Like, I'm like, do this, do that. And you have to have an amazing guitarist in order to do the parts that she hears because she's hearing all of these interlocking parts and she's vocally agile enough to communicate that. And then he interprets that on the guitar. And so when you're young and somebody tells you that that's a potential process, you're like, oh, well, why not? You know, so I've learned over the years that most guitarists are not open to that. My wife is a good guitarist and she was open to it. My drummer who plays guitar on some of this record, uh, who's been with me forever, he's open to it. And my friend Gabriel Jordan, who played on Song for the End of Days, he was open to it. You know, he's just one of those egoless spirits that just is, is there to have a warm time. I'm a fire spirit when it comes to making music. My wife calls it my bloody Beethoven mode. And I've been trying to leave more space over the years. I've been trying to learn to leave more space for people to express themselves how they want to. But I find that my spine has very specific instructions. And if my spine raises its hand and says, hey, that's not how it goes, I've got no choice but to tell them. I'm going to spend more time listening to this music than anybody else. So uh, it has to be palatable for me. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's that's pretty much how it goes. Yeah, given what a strong literal and compositional voice you have, I was surprised to see that you had co-fronted this band with your wife, Liz Hogan, The Shiz, about two and a half albums, 2009, 2012, 2013. And the fact that you're sort of trading off lead vocals and harmonizing with each other, I mean, that's great to do that as a family. But how is that, even at the time, was that sort of a side project or was that this is where you're putting your musical energy, for, at least for a, a limited period of time. The Shiz kind of did take over that period. We started that band because Liz had taken on a job as a 
wilderness therapist out in Arizona. And when they found out she was gay, they fired her. And she had never really experienced any sort of discriminatory situations before. And she just kind of got brokenhearted and decided she wanted to move back home. And on the way back home, it was, we should form a band. And it was kind of a therapy project to sort of get her to open up and feel self-expressed again. And so I think it started as a side project for me, but it very quickly became like the most fun I'd ever had. Like I'd always secretly wanted to have a rock band and I just was never like cool enough to hang out with the kids. Like every time I was in a band, like because I didn't do drugs, like I got kicked out pretty easily, (laughs) you know, we just formed this little band bubble. It started out an all-woman ensemble. Our first record, Where We Stand, was like an all-woman thing. But then our drummer's boyfriend decided that he was our biggest fan and he started playing bass for us. And he's now my current drummer. He's the one I've been talking about all this time. He plays everything. He's like, he's just that guy. And then the drummer abandoned the project and he switched to drums, which is his first instrument. And we got this really grounded, solid bass player named Alan Craig. When it became that quartet, it just sort of took on a life of its own. And I think our real record is one called Meet You in the Morning, which to this day, I'm like, yeah, that holds up, man. You know, but we were just indie kids in a tiny, you know, small town using our local producer, you know, TJ Behrens, who still does a lot of work with the same indie kids, like just this like red town. Well, actually, it's kind of the bluest town in Louisiana outside of uh, New Orleans, but There were no out queer people there at the time, you know, except for my wife and I. And it was like, you know, everybody was playing the same 50 songs in the clubs and we would come in and play all these original songs. And we picked this name, The Shiz, so as not to take ourselves too seriously. But all the songs are pretty loaded. But it was just, it was super fun. You know, we hoofed it hard. Like folks in that town had a totally different work ethic than the people in New Orleans. Like New Orleans people mainly like to play in New Orleans, you know, but in these little towns where there's nothing else to do and New Orleans is too snobby to consider us local. We went out and we toured a lot. We played in the region. Like we were doing three or four shows a week, just having a great time doing it. Like I would still be doing that band if my wife hadn't grown out of it and decided to start teaching writing it at the university local. You know, she kind of decided to get degreed and write poetry and and do grown-up things. Um, But it was super hard for me when that project broke up because I'd always been such a loner. You know, I'd been a classical pianist where you do everything alone. And, you know, I'd stopped singing in choirs where that was like my only communal experience for a long time. And here and here I had this thing where like I was just automatically in the club. We me and my sociophobic self like had a club and we got to get loud and like that sort of operatic energy that I was able to bring to the rock numbers, my body really had missed that a great deal. So our writing process was co-bloody Beethoven. You know, she was just as deliberate as I was. She's like, nope, this is how it goes. And that was really fun. It was really fun to get a chance to share that with somebody. And I think ultimately... I got too excited about it. And, you know, I was like, well, let's do something with this. And she's like, no, I just, I just wanted to play guitar a little bit, you know? (laughs) So she's moved on, but I, I got weighed out of the picture, my current drummer and, um, and we've been riding hard ever since. So I understand our last song here, Copper John, also from the the new album Americana, 
was left over from that period, which maybe explains why it is so guitar heavy, so alt country, very much not what one would expect from a jazz singing piano player lady. <laughs> right. Like I've said, I never really saw myself as a jazz singing piano playing lady. I understand that a lot of jazz language came out in my music, but I never saw myself that way. And I had tons of songs that, you know, didn't fit that language at all. And I just never got to play them. And the shiz was my main outlet for that material. And so there were lots of songs that got left on the shelf when the band broke up. And one of them is Copper John. Like I had written it. I remember getting up in the middle of the night and going to the middle space where we used to do our, our rehearsals and working out this harmony for the chorus that I was like, ah, yes, it's perfect for this band. And I couldn't wait to bring it to him. And then things just sort of started floating apart and I never got to do it. And that song has been with me for about 10 years now and just didn't have the right opportunity to play it because, you know, New Orleans is not really known for country songs, (laughs) especially not these days. So I wasn't even sure it was a song, but like when the pandemic hit and all the gigs disappeared, I started revisiting material that had been sort of left on the floor because there's no place to play them in New Orleans. And I I thought, well, maybe this is an opportunity to find out if this song is actually a song. I had written it about kind of like the houseless people who had ushered me along when I ran away from home and had like been witness to me and, and kept me on the path moving forward. And this was, this was my chance to tell that story. And it's actually interesting. It's the one song on the new record that the most people seem to resonate with. So all these years I've been insecure for no reason. <laughs> well, thanks so much for doing this. This has really been a pleasure working my way through your catalog and hearing about it. I certainly appreciate that. You know, all of the songs we talked about today, it seems are from past lives, you know, so this has been pretty integrating for me. So thanks. <laughs> All right, here it is, Copper John.
Thanks so much to Lily. She was a joy to talk to and a rare guest who had been listening to my philosophy podcast for many years. So it was like meeting an old friend. You can check out her music at folkrockdiva.com or look at lilylewisproject.com. My next episode will be with James McMurtry, Texas songwriting legend. And right after I finish recording this right now, I am talking to Paula Cole. Yes, that Paula Cole, the Grammy winner whose songs have been used for soundtracks and other wonderful things. So that is two damn amazing artists after Lily, who is also amazing. Make sure you're subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music podcast. You can find all the links at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Hey, I now have Instagram. I'm posting on that. You should follow me there. There's also a Facebook page, and I use my personal Twitter, at Mark Linsenmeyer. If you've not already checked out my philosophy slash comedy podcast, Philosophy versus Improv, I encourage you to go look at that. There's also Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast where we just featured the podcasting debut of my adult son, Abe. If you would like to get ad-free access to all three of those podcasts with one small monthly fee, you can do that directly through the Apple Podcast app, or each of those podcasts has their own Patreon pages. Thank you all so, so, so much for listening. I hope you're leading creatively fulfilling lives, free of needless suffering. Until next time, keep on musicin'. This is Mark Meyer signing off.